Crucifixion wasn't a topic of discussion in polite company in the ancient world. It was a form of execution and of torture that was reserved mostly for slaves and for traitors. It was designed to be a deterrent and to warn others about what would happen to them, not to do what the crucified person had done to deserve this. And it was meant to kill its victims, but it was meant to kill them very, very slowly and with a lot of pain. And it could be conducted in a variety of ways, depending on how they wanted to affix the person who was being crucified to the cross and what other torture might precede crucifixion. But the intent was always the same, to produce as much pain as possible so as to strike fear in the hearts of onlookers. And in Jesus' case, his crucifixion began with a scourging in which the victim was tied to a pole with their hands usually above their heads so that their back and their arms would be stretched out. And then a whip made of leather straps in which pieces of uh, broken pottery and of sharp stones would be embedded was used to beat the victim. And so that whip would be brought down on the back of the victim. It would often probably wrap around the side of their rib cage. And as you can imagine, if sharp objects are embedded in it, they would embed into the flesh of the person being beaten. And then the soldier would have to pull on the whip, ripping and flaying open the flesh of the person who was receiving that scourging. And so this happened to Jesus. He was scourged, he was beaten multiple times. The soldier uh, exposed the flesh of his back and the whip would be pulled back and rip open the flesh of Jesus. And after Jesus was scourged, the soldiers proceeded to mock him. They beat him, they spit on him, they fashioned a crown of thorns and pressed it down on his head and they made a mockery of him. And after all of this, he was then made to carry his cross to the hill where he was to be crucified. Once there, you get to maybe the most famous part of the crucifixion, but probably not even the most painful, but the part where Jesus had nails driven through his ankles and through his wrists in order to fix him to the cross. Then the cross, after he was fixed to it, was hoisted up and set up vertically, and this began the long, agonizing march toward death. And as Jesus hung there, like other victims of crucifixion, his arms outstretched, what would inevitably happen was his body would sag. And as his body sagged with his arms stretched out over his head, his ribs would be constricted, which would make it very, very difficult to breathe. And in fact, how most crucifixion victims died was probably a multitude of things like bleeding out, but it was actually often asphyxiation. They suffocated to death as they lost strength to be able to pull themselves up. And so as you can imagine, he's hanging there, his ribs are constricted, he can't breathe. The only way to be able to get a full breath would be to push up and pull, and the only thing to pull on or push on would be the nail through your ankles or the nails through your wrist. And each time Jesus did this, searing pain would shoot through his legs and through his arms, through the damaged nerves where he had been affixed to the cross with spikes as he pulled himself up to breathe in and then breathed out and let himself down again. And this would sometimes go on for hours and hours. In fact, in Jesus' case, we know it went on for hours and hours. It was not a quick death. And this sickening spectacle went on for a long time, and it's little wonder that People didn't bring this up in polite company or at dinner parties. It was brutal. It was grotesque. It's almost unthinkable that someone would come to you and tell you that they have good news. 
And the good news is this, that your Savior was crucified. That's grotesque. It's gross. Who would ever come up with something like that? How is that good news? Of course, the part of this good news, a big part of the good news, was that Jesus did not just die, but that he was raised from the dead. If Jesus was not raised, we cannot be saved. But you can probably understand, at least initially, how someone coming and saying, I have good news for you, I can tell you how you can be saved, and then proceeding to say, Jesus was the Son of God and he was crucified, didn't exactly strike people in the first century as good news or as a really legitimate way to be saved. Crucifixion was for the worst and for the weakest. How could anyone claim that God would save them this way? And yet here we are thousands of years later still proclaiming that there is only one way of salvation and that is through the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. But it was even worse for Jesus than this. This was typical of crucifixion. Thousands upon thousands of people in the ancient world experienced crucifixion at the hands of the Romans and even the Assyrians and the Babylonians before them. But it was even worse for Jesus because his pain wasn't just physical, but it was also psychological and spiritual. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. Now we may not know all the details of how this worked or how a transfer of sin could, could take place, but the scripture is clear. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now you know, I'm sure, the psychological pain of evil. I'm sure you've done something that was wrong, that you knew you should not have done, and it kept you awake one night, asking yourself how you could have acted that way, how someone that you call a good person could act in such an evil way, wondering why you hurt others, or struggling to comprehend how you could think of yourself as good, and yet act like you do. All of that, for all people, was laid on Jesus. Not just the psychology of it, but the guilt of it was laid on Christ. And not only that, but the scripture says that Jesus experienced the wrath of God against sin. The Bible tells us that God is justifiably angry at sin and that Jesus experienced God's wrath against our sin. And if you're a psychologically healthy person and you make another person angry, especially if it's your fault, especially if you know they're justifiably angry with you, that tends to bother you, doesn't it? It tends to create a tension in your soul and strife in your spirit of that broken relationship as it gnaws at you and you feel something internally that maybe you could describe as pressure or a weight it's like a disease in your soul because of that anger, and you want that anger to be resolved, and you feel a tension until it is. Imagine how much more terrible that anger is when it is God's anger against sin. Imagine the turmoil of realizing that the sin of the world is on you, and God's righteous judgment and wrath against sin is all directed at you. It's little wonder that shortly before Jesus died, he described his experience by quoting Psalm 22.1 when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Last week, 
Pastor Franco, he talked and preached about sin and the fallenness of humanity. And today we get to hear about redemption that can only come through Jesus. The, the doctrine of the salvation of man states this. It says, man's only hope of redemption is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Salvation is received through repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, being justified by grace through faith, man becomes an heir of God according to the hope of eternal life. The inward evidence of salvation is the direct witness of the Spirit. The outward evidence to all men is a life of righteousness and true holiness. Today we're going to look at this doctrine of salvation. What does it mean that we're saved? What did God do in order to redeem us and to rescue us? And we're going to do that primarily by focusing on Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 as, our un- as a basis for our understanding of this doctrine. There, the Apostle Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can only be right with God through faith in Jesus. It's the only way to be forgiven, only way to be redeemed. Romans chapter one says that the root of sin is that we fail to acknowledge God. So redemption comes when we acknowledge what Jesus has done and that he alone is Lord. So we're going to look at four characteristics of salvation this morning so that by better understanding what God has done and the salvation that he offers us, our faith in Christ might grow and our love for him will also grow and produce obedience and joy to Jesus. And the the first characteristic of being made right with God is that you must receive righteousness as a gift. In this passage, Paul utilizes language from several different spheres of life to describe what Jesus has done for us. And the first is the language of the law, the language of the court. If you have faith in Christ, he says, you have been justified. Last week we saw that we are all guilty before God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 states, there is no one righteous, no, not one. But now, through faith in Jesus, you can be declared not guilty. That is what justified means. Through no work of your own, God has cleared your name and made you right with him. You didn't work off your debt. You didn't do your time. You didn't do community service. But God declares you not guilty if your faith is in Jesus. Justified is a, is a verbal form of the word that's often translated righteous or righteousness, to be right with God. And it means that God declares you righteous. If you are justified, it means he declares you not guilty. And one simple way to remember what justification means is that God declares you not guilty just as if you'd never sinned. Justification, just as if you never sinned. And again, this justification is not because of your works. It's because of God's grace. It is a gift. Gifts are not earned. Gifts are received. 
have a pastor friend that I meet for breakfast from time to time, and I'm sure you have this experience with people that you go out to eat with. At the end of the meal, when the check is dropped off at the table, one of us will grab the bill to pay the bill, and the other will inevitably protest, oh no, let me get it this time, uh, let me pay for my own, do you want to split it, or something like that. And of course, those protests are ineffective, and the next time we meet, the other one is going to pick up the check and going to take care of it. And I'm sure you've been in similar situations where one of you picks up the tab and there's an argument over that. But when it comes to justification, all that we can do is receive what God has done. I don't have anything to do with paying the bill for my sin. There's no next time at which I'm going to pick up the tab. There's no way we're going to split this bill. Justification means God has paid the bill and all I can do is receive it. I tried to pay it. I tried to pay it by being good. And I stood in the embarrassing position like when you go to pay a bill and you realize, oh, I left my wallet at home and you've got nothing. Or your credit card gets rejected and you're left in the awkward position of saying, actually, I can't pay this. Can you pay it for me? And that's what I was left with when I tried to pay the bill of my own sin, when I tried to be good enough for God, when I tried to rationalize my position and think that somehow I could pay God back. I was left in the awkward position of saying I've got no cash and my credit card is rejected. There's nothing that I can do to make this right. You'll have to pay the bill. And God in his grace has done that. Now some find this a difficult concept to accept. Maybe when you're at dinner with somebody and they reach for the bill, you find it very uncomfortable. You don't like it. You don't like the thought that you're in someone else's debt, that they paid something that you ate, that you should owe. And we want to feel oftentimes as if we've paid our own way, or at least that we're going to be able to pay people back. But when it comes to salvation, you can't. Jesus paid it all, and there's nothing to be added to it. His death is more than enough, and nothing you can do increases the value of it. So all you can do is simply receive what he's done. That's one property of faith. It's a simple reception. It doesn't rely on itself. It relies on God's grace. It abandons trying to find a way to pay God back, and it simply receives God's goodness and rejoices in it. Freely given goodness. Faith receives and That's such a great benefit. How can I ever be sure that I'm saved? How can I be convinced that my debt is actually paid? If I had to try to pay back this debt, I couldn't. And I could never be fully sure I've done enough. I've done enough good to pay off the bad. How would I ever be convinced of that? How would I know when enough is enough? How could I ever think that I had given God enough back for what he's done. But the good news about faith and the justification God gives is that it comes simply as a gift and you receive it. And this gives you the assurance, I am really saved. I'm really safe in God. I'm really justified in him because it doesn't rest on me, it rests on what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And to receive justification by God's grace lifts an intolerably heavy burden from your shoulders of trying to be good enough for God. It removes the fear of condemnation and it allows you to live with joy. This is the place, as the song says, where fears are stilled and where strivings cease. 
Are you stuck in the dead end of trying to pay God back for the evil that you've done? Are you still convinced that you're going to somehow turn your life around and be good enough for God so you're constantly measuring the bad you've done against the good you did today and feeling that you've fallen short? Do you live under the fear that you aren't good enough for God and you don't deserve his mercy? You're absolutely right. You do not deserve God's mercy, but he gave it to you anyway. Because mercy is not something that is deserved. Mercy is something that is given out of the goodness of God and is received by faith. And today, you can be sure that you're right with God. You can leave without the burden of striving and trying to be good enough because salvation is received, it's not earned. You can only be right with God through faith in Jesus. And the first characteristic of that faith and righteousness is that you have to receive it as a gift. But the second uh, characteristic comes from not the court of law, but from the slave market. And it's this, you must depend on Jesus for freedom. We Northeasterners, we know a thing or two about freedom, don't we? This is where the revolution began, after all. And we're familiar with the Gadsden flag. Maybe you've seen these flags flying on people's, car, or people's houses or from uh, pickup trucks with a lot of rust on them, and they're flying back there, and it's, don't tread on me, right? This is a flag that was flown during the Revolutionary War. We see, uh, we see these flown. We see uh, the license plates of our northern neighbors. Live free or die, now, I, for one, am grateful to live in a nation where we can exercise the liberties that we do, such as the liberty to meet and worship, and not only to meet together and worship, but that we can live out our days as believers in Jesus Christ publicly, not having to be afraid of what others will do or think. That's a great blessing to us, whether we're in the church building or we're in the office building. But there is a freedom that is even more fundamental to life than the liberties that can be granted by a government or a nation or a constitution even. It is the spiritual freedom that was purchased by God. And that's what redemption means. Redemption means to purchase freedom. And the word redemption was used most often in the context of the slave market. Slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. Some estimates are that at the time of Christ and there around, about 70% of the population of first century Rome, the actual city, were slaves or former slaves. So people understood well the imagery of slavery. A slave could be redeemed if he could pay for his freedom or if someone else would pay the price for him. But I'm not a slave. I'm an American, don't tread on me. However, what good is external liberty if your soul is enslaved? How free are you really if the only freedom you know is external, but you don't know the freedom that begins in the soul and makes the entire person free, whatever's going on on the outside? It's possible to be free on the outside while being a slave internally. In fact, Jesus said it this way, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And without Christ, sin is your master. This is true of addictions where it's easily recognizable, but it's also true in the subtle motivations of the hearts of men and women. Our hearts are motivated by pride and we try to be good without God. 
We want to impress others with our good deeds. In arrogance, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Don't tread on me. Our souls disdainfully cry against God. And he gives us what we want, and we don't even realize that in our freedom, we're descending further and further into slavery until it overwhelms us, and we come to the dead end of the law and of works, recognizing, hopefully, before the end, that we cannot pay for this ourselves And it is precisely from the dead end of human pride and of self-sufficiency that God redeems us and he teaches us the true meaning of liberty. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And the freedom of the human soul does not come from a desire to be autonomous, to be completely self-directed, but it comes from the willing submission of itself to its gracious creator and savior. That's where real freedom comes. Not in self-fulfillment, but in submission to the creator and to the savior. Like a child willingly submits to the loving direction of her parents, we find real freedom when we willingly depend on Christ for our freedom. All of our external freedoms are delusions unless we have freedom that comes by faith in the Son of God. And when we look up from these merely external freedoms and we see the redemption brought by the the precious blood of Jesus, we realize that we have been entertained with mirages while God offers us a real feast. And the freedom he offers results in a life of real righteousness as well, not just pretend righteousness. Jesus doesn't pretend to set you free from sin. He actually sets you free from sin. When we have faith in Christ, the scripture says, we die to sin. And if we've died to it, we can no longer be enslaved by it. If you have trusted Jesus, you've died to sin, and now you live in him. You live to God, and you abide in him. Have you been redeemed by Christ? Have you been set free Are you still searching for freedom through external things, like how much money you can make, or relationship after relationship, where you go from one person to the next, rebounding, trying to find significance in another person because you've not yet surrendered fully to Jesus. Maybe you have continued in the pursuit of pleasure to help you seek significance. What I wanna ask you today is this, will you depend on Jesus for real freedom? Will you trust that he has paid the price to set you free for your redemption and begin to walk in faith that you are really free from sin? Christian, how might God be calling you to focus on the real internal freedom that comes from Christ and to help others find that freedom as well? Not just by exercising the liberties of your, of your own life and of your own pleasure, but by exercising the discipline that demonstrates the freedom you have in Christ. Maybe he's calling you to practice that discipline in your outer liberties, like pleasure or entertainment or spending or comforts, so that you can experience the redemption of Christ from sin to a greater degree and be a better demonstration of what it looks like to be free from sin to others who are watching you. Is there some sin in your life to which you keep returning and you feel enslaved to it, unable to overcome? Will you give that to Christ today? Will you, not because you are convinced that you can overcome, but because you are convinced that Christ has overcome and can overcome in you, will you give it to him and lay that sin down that it might be done with, that you might know the real freedom that comes from Jesus? Will you come to him in faith one more time? 
trusting and believing him to do what you are incapable of doing. It's not that your will isn't involved in this. It's that your strength is too small. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. Trust him to give strength where you're weak. Rely on him in prayer and faith and receive the redemption he offers because he does not give redemption in name only. He doesn't give you a flag to fly while you're still enslaved. He actually sets the captive free. Will you let him set you free today by trusting him with your redemption? Another characteristic of righteousness by faith that we see in Romans 3, in addition to that of the court of law, and in addition to that of the slave market, comes from the altar. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for our sins. He is the propitiation that is put forward by God. Last week, we saw that we are all sinners and that God's wrath is revealed against sin and all unrighteousness. What can appease God's wrath? What can satisfy it? Both Jews and and other pagan nations understood sacrifices as a way to satisfy divine wrath, at least in part. And the death of an animal symbolized by its blood being poured out or sprinkled was not only supposed to remove guilt, it was also supposed to appease God, to appease God's wrath, to satisfy his justice, to turn that wrath away from the person who was bringing the sacrifice to the sacrifice itself. Now this may strike us as odd or even cruel. It, it seems like a thing of the distant past that no longer bears any, any uh, real resemblance to our modern experiences, but remember this. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. That only makes sense because the essence of sin is a willing rebellion against the creator of life. So if you willingly rebel against the creator of your life, what other outcome could there be except your death, your separation from him, your spiritual death, and your eventual physical death as well because you have decided, I do not want to listen to the one who gave me life. And it makes sense because the essence of our sin is that rebellion against him. In recent years, however, some have begun to question whether Paul really meant that God's wrath is appeased through the death of his son. After all, isn't that rather vulgar? What kind of God gets angry but is then appeased when his son dies? Isn't it better to think that God is love and that the death of Christ was really not to appease God's wrath, but it was just this really significant demonstration of how far God would go to show us his love? Now, we need to understand several points in relation to these questions. First, the Father and the Son are not divided. It's not as if the Father is, is mean and angry at sin and Jesus is good and gentle and mild and wants to save you. No, no, no. Both are angry at sin. Remember when Jesus turned over the tables in the temple? He was mad at sin. And he's angry at your sin. And he's angry at my sin. And both the Father and Son want to redeem us. They're both justly angry with sin and they both love you and want to redeem you. Second, God's wrath and his love are not at odds with one another. He is angry at sin, and he's angry at sinners, and he still loves us. He's not divided. Anyone who has kids can easily understand that you can be angry, even with a person, and love that person at the same time. God's anger did not overcome his love. Instead, his anger and his love were both demonstrated at the cross. But third, God cannot simply overlook sin. In fact, we wouldn't want a God 
who could simply overlook sin, would we? Where would justice be? How could we trust that God will do right if he turned a blind eye to sin? How could we think that God is holy and different than any corrupt politician or anybody else if he turned a blind eye to sin? What we must understand about God's wrath is that he is right to be angry. He should be angry at sin. And I think that most of us know that. If God wasn't angry at murder or rape or genocide or war or bullying or boasting or all other manners of sin, what kind of God would he be? How could you ever turn to him and say, God, deliver me from the injustice I have endured? If he's not angry at sin, why would he do that? You couldn't trust him. Could we trust that he will do what's right by us if he doesn't do what's right when we do what is wrong? Fourth, God's word clearly states that he's angry at sin. Romans 1.18 says it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Any attempt to understand Paul, what, what he means when he says propitiation, that God put forward his son as a propitiation or as an appeasement, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 3.25, without accounting for God's wrath and his judgment isn't listening to what Paul himself says. Finally, Paul was aware of questions such as these about how could God be angry and how, would his, how does his son actually satisfy that anger. And that's why he wrote the second half of verses 25 and 26 because he's already been merciful towards sinners by not giving them what they deserve immediately. He has, in fact, as Paul said, overlooked sin for a time and not brought the full consequences down on sin on sinners. Before Christ came, God demonstrated his great patience with sin, even though it wasn't deserved. How could he, how could he do that and still be just? Because he was looking forward to the time when he would send his only son as the propitiation and appeasing sacrifice for that sin. That's what the sacrifices in the Old Testament were all about. They didn't accomplish anything on their own by themselves. Instead, they all looked forward to when Jesus would die on behalf of sinners. But that still leaves us with the burning question of how someone else's death can satisfy God's wrath toward me. Because what we must all understand is not just that God is angry at sin, but that God is angry with sinners. The Bible is very, very clear on this, that while we might say you should, you should love the sinner and hate the sin, that's good, but it is indeed the sinner who sins. And the Bible says that, that all have sinned and they all fall short of the glory of God, and that the, Paul could even describe us all as sons of wrath, sons and daughters of God's wrath. And so what we have to understand is that God is angry at sin. And he's angry with your sin, he's angry with my sin. We have to understand that God is angry before we can understand how God paid the price for our sin. And that's why we talked about sin last week. Several weeks ago, we saw how the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And it's absolutely essential on this point that we maintain the deity of Jesus because if Jesus is not God, how could the sacrifice of Jesus have satisfied God's wrath? 
If Jesus is not God, how could he have carried the sin of more than just himself when he died on the cross? How could the death of a third party clear my name with God? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus must be God or I'm still in my sin. But even if Jesus is God, and he is, how can his death be applied to me? How do I receive what he's done? Here's where understanding the nature of faith and what it is to believe is so important. We often think of faith in terms of, of belief, and, and for us, belief means accepting that something is true. And so if, if you were to come to me and you were to say, uh, Pastor Stephen, the carpet in my house is pink. I think you're a little strange, but I believe you. I have no reason not to. So I would have accepted a fact that you had shared with me. But that belief really doesn't accomplish anything, does it? Except maybe making me think you're a little odd. I now know, please forgive me, if you have pink carpet, it's fine. I'm sorry. I don't mean to say that you're odd, you know, to each his own. But it doesn't do a lot for me if I know that you have pink carpet, does it? I just know a fact. And that's just the bottom layer of faith. Faith in Jesus is not simply believing that Jesus died. That's true, but it's only the first part of the story. Listen to how Paul describes faith. Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And he says, And I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Did you hear what Paul says, how he describes faith? Fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul didn't just believe that Jesus died. He believed that in Jesus, he, Paul, had died. He put it this way, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in him by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The reason that Christ's death satisfies the wrath of God when received by faith is not simply because someone died for you, but because by faith you participate in Christ's death. You die in him. You die with him. I have been crucified with Christ And the reason we can now live in God's grace and we can live in his pleasure is because we also participate in Christ's resurrection. And yet I live, not I, but Christ who lives in me. And so faith is much deeper than we often suppose. You receive forgiveness when you participate in Christ by faith. God's wrath is appeased because you have died by faith in Christ, and you are now free to live fully in his resurrection. This is why, while Jesus died for all, and his death is sufficient for all, only those who believe in him receive the sufficiency of his death, receive the benefit of his death, because they die in him, and so they have died to sin, and the punishment and the wrath of God has been paid for through Christ's death, that they have died in him, and now they live again in Christ. This is real faith. It is not merely the acceptance that someone did something or that you have pink carpet in your house. Faith is the belief that I have trusted Jesus so fully with my life that I can say, I have died with him, and yet I live. 
Are you walking in that fullness of faith? Or is your faith just a belief about something that happened in ancient history? Have you died with Christ and are you living by faith in him or did you just pray a prayer one time or profess that you believe something because you thought it might make you feel better? That's not faith. Faith is reception, dependence, participation, and identification with Christ. Like we're going to see in our second service, 11 uh, students from our youth group are going to be baptized. They are going to identify with Christ They're going to say, I identify with Christ in his death when they go under the water. And I identify with Christ in his resurrection when they come up. That's what faith is. I identify with Christ. By faith, you participate in Christ's death. And as a result, your sin is gone. Because it was paid for in Jesus and you've died in him. And the wrath of God is satisfied. And at the same time, God saves you. And when you're saved, a transformation takes place. Jesus said in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is the final thing I I want you to know about faith and righteousness in God and what it means to be saved. If you want to be right with God, you must be born again. Of course, you can't do this yourself. You can't start life over I was talking with my youngest son uh, last week, I think it was, and I was talking about John chapter 3, and I told him this, you know, I, I recited this verse to him. Jesus said, you must be born again. He said exactly what, Nicodem- or what, the, uh, what Nicodemus said. He said, how can I get back in mommy's tummy? I said, that's not what it means. He said exactly what Nicodemus' objection was. How can I enter the womb again? How can I be born again? And of course, you can't do this yourself. You can't do it physically yourself, but you can't do it spiritually yourself either, can you? You can't start life over. Rather, this occurs when you believe in Jesus the way that we talked about a moment ago. Not just a belief that happens up here in your mind, but a belief in which you trust your whole life to him, believing that he died, that he rose, and that you can only be right with God through him. And when you believe that way, you die with Christ but you're also raised with him and you're given new life. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Rather than living separated from God, salvation, righteousness means living through Christ or living in Jesus. God renews your spirit. Instead of wanting to rebel against him, he puts a heart in you that makes you want to honor him. Rather than running from him, he puts the desire in you that you will want to run to him and to walk with him. And this new life occurs through the Holy Spirit who lives in you when you believe in Jesus with the kind of faith we've talked about this morning. And one piece of evidence that you've been saved is that inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. An inner sense that you no longer desire to run from God, but you want to please him. And that even in moments of failure of of your own life and your own flesh, that your desire is still, I want to serve the Lord. I want to know him. I want to be made right with him so that you repent and you continue that walk with him that you began. Previously, you could not please God and you didn't even want to. The scripture says this, that you were hostile to God, but now you've been born again. The Holy Spirit cries out in you, Abba, Father, and you are God's child. And because you've been born again, not of the flesh, but born of the Spirit, you have eternal life. And nothing can separate you from God's love. 
Another piece of evidence that this has occurred is that your life changes externally as well. You start living a life of righteousness and holiness. You not only want to please God, but you now live to please God. This doesn't happen all at once, but over time as you walk with Christ, you become more and more like him. His word bears fruit in your life and you're shaped by his spirit rather than being shaped by the world. But how can you be born again? How do you go from death to life and how do you grow in a life of real righteousness and holiness? You repent and you believe. This is how you receive salvation. To repent means that you turn away from your sin. It means that you recognize that you're wrong. It's, it's a confession not only that you've done wrong, but that you were wrong. It's a turn around. It's not just a confession that says, Jesus, I feel ashamed, and, and labeling shame as if it's something like our world today describes it. Shame is often described as just a, a psychological emanation from things that you really shouldn't feel bad about anyway. And if we can just get to the heart of them, then we can remove that shame without any real change in your life, perhaps. But shame, as it is referred to in the scripture, comes because we have actually sinned against God and his wrath is against us. And God wants to remove that. And he's done everything necessary. But you don't just turn from what you're doing. You don't just turn from the past. You don't just turn from the shame. You have to turn to something. Or rather, you have to turn to someone. And that's where belief comes in. You repent. You turn around. You confess. Not only did, did I do wrong, but I was wrong. I was going the wrong direction. I rebelled against God. I failed to acknowledge his love, his grace, his His presence in my life. I didn't acknowledge him. But not only do you turn from that, you turn to someone and you turn to Jesus. You entrust your life to Christ. As we said, faith is not merely belief. It is trusting another person with your life. And the good news this morning is that God loves you and he sent Jesus to save you. And Jesus died the brutal death that we talked about at the beginning of this message, not only enduring physical anguish, but bearing your sin and the wrath against that sin, the wrath of God that your sin justly deserves. And as Jesus died, he cried out in John 19.30, it is finished. Everything necessary to save you, to redeem you, had been accomplished by Jesus. And now you can receive salvation through repentance and faith. And as you continue in Christ, you keep going in repentance and faith. You don't stop. The Christian life, in fact, is one of continued repentance and faith, constantly turning to Jesus. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to Christ Maybe you've never expressed faith in Jesus or maybe you have and you feel like you are stuck, like you're not moving forward anymore. Perhaps you've responded in faith to Jesus and you really believed in him, but now something has gotten in the way of your moving forward with Christ and entrusting your life to him. Maybe you went backward from where you were or you might say that you backslid from where you were when you were living a life of real righteousness and you're stuck or you feel like you've gone the wrong direction from following Christ. The answer, whether you have never believed in Christ or you say, I raised my hand one time and and I never really did anything about it, or I raised my hand and things seemed to be going well, but then I 
went away from Jesus, the answer in any of these cases is the same. Repent and believe. Turn away from the sin that is hindering you and trust Jesus' promise of salvation. Even you, believer, who may be saying, I'm still walking with Jesus, but I have some things in my life that are hindering me from moving like I'd like. I have some things where where I might be able to characterize my overall life as free in Jesus that I haven't been able to have victory over in my life. What's the answer for you? What do you do with that? The answer is the same. Repent and believe. Because God offers salvation, redemption, for all who will call on him, that they can be saved. And the, the universal way the scripture describes what you do to receive salvation is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess that he is Lord. Confess that you've sinned against God, that your life was hostile to God, and then turn to Jesus and believe in him, not with a belief that is merely here, but with a belief that encompasses the whole of your life, saying, God, I surrender all to you today. And so the call this morning is fairly simple. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, or maybe you do have a relationship with God through Jesus, but there are things in your life that you know, places you know, I'm not free. I'm not walking in redemption. I can't say this has been crucified to me. I can't say, as the Apostle Paul said, I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. And there are those places that exist in your life. The call to all is the same. Repent and believe. And often when we come to moments like this in a church service, There's a great deal of of shame, cultural shame, that exists when people want to repent. Because we still sometimes as the church don't grasp the grace of God as sufficiently as we should. Because we're afraid that if if I say there's something in my life for which I need to repent, others have the right to look at me and think, Well, that person is rotten. He's not who he said he was. She's not who, they must have been pretending there's something wrong with them that's not wrong with me. And we think that there's this judgment that takes place when there's repentance that occurs. What we often forget is that repentance is a gift of God, just as salvation is a gift of God. The scripture makes this clear. And so when someone responds in repentance, none of us has the right to think, oh, they, wow, they're not who I thought they were. That, that's not who I, who I imagined them to be. But instead, we rejoice with them. That God has given them a gift of repentance and has called to them. And they are responding to the Holy Spirit. And if our thoughts turn to judgment, perhaps an a appropriate response would be for us as well to repent and believe. To repent and believe that God has saved us by his grace and not because we're better than anybody else but merely because he loved us and he did everything necessary by sending his son Jesus to hang on the cross and cry out, it is finished. Today, whether you've never believed in Jesus at all, you've never confessed him as your Lord and Savior, you've never, you've never cried out to him in faith and, and, and repented of who you were, repented of your past, turned away from it and called on Jesus, relying fully on him, or you are a believer in Jesus, you love him, you know he's redeemed you, but there's something in your life where you felt stuck and you wanna move forward, you wanna know his redemption, you wanna know his freedom, you wanna know victory in Jesus over that thing. Today the call is simple, will you repent And believe, will you turn away from it by faith, not in your ability to overcome it yourself, but by faith in what God has done for you in Jesus? Will you repent and believe?
So I'm going to ask our prayer partners, if any of our pastors are here, deacons or deaconesses, if you'd be ready in just a moment, because I'm going to ask for this response. If you need to repent and believe in any regard, whether you've never believed before or you've been a believer for years, this is not a confession that you backslid or you turned away. If that's you, you can come and confess that this morning, but your action, your movement is not a confession to this body that you are shameful in some way, but it is a response to what God is doing in your life, to a call to repent and believe. If you want to be free in Jesus from some specific thing that has been a hindrance in your life, all the way to you've never confessed faith in Jesus and you want to receive that salvation this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something rather bold. Would, anybody, would everyone just close your eyes for a moment? If that's you and you want to either receive salvation for the first time or you want to repent and believe over something very specific in your life and just receive the forgiveness, the freedom that comes from Jesus, would you just right now get out of your seat and come forward and begin to pray on your own, just confessing and believing in Jesus. You don't have to wait for somebody else to do it. And again, this is not the walk of shame. I'm not standing up here thinking anything about you and nobody else should be either. We are simply rejoicing with you that Jesus has given freedom and that we have the opportunity to receive it this morning. Prayer partners and pastors, if you just come and you can begin to pray with people. If you want to come and anything in your life, anything in your heart, or you want to receive Jesus, you want to know him, you want to repent and believe today for the very first time, come, come, that is available to all. Scripture says that God loved the world in this way, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The scripture says that he came to seek and to save those who are lost. The scripture tells us that God sent his son Jesus and that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But God came, Jesus came, that we might have life and have it to the full. Today will you come and receive that. And congregation, if you're waiting and watching, you pray as well. You pray where you're at and just receive the love of God and the grace of God. Let's wait on him for a moment. It's not even 10.30 yet. Can we just wait on the Lord this morning? Jesus, we wait for you. Lord, we call out to you and we thank you so much that you have given us freedom in Jesus. We thank you for the victory you've supplied. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in you. We thank you, Lord, that you call us and you redeem us and you do not call us to shame, but you call us to freedom. Today, Lord, as we repent and we turn away from the things of the past, as we turn away, Lord, from the things that we've tried to do in our own strength and we turn to you, Lord, we pray for radical transformation and for real redemption. We pray for the freedom that comes in Jesus. We remember the promise that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And Lord, sometimes we question and we wonder, why can I not be free of this? Why does this seem to hold on in my life? Even as I seek to serve Christ, we wonder, why do I seem to be unable to get rid of this? Today, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to be able to understand with all the saints the height and depth and breadth and length of the love that you have for us, that we might be filled with all your fullness, and that today our hearts would be convinced that you have given real freedom. I pray that real freedom would come not as an act of despairing, but as an act of faith in you, trusting it's you, Lord, who give true redemption. 
true freedom. Lord, I pray that bondage would be broken, that chains would be broken this morning in Jesus' name. Even now, if there's something in your life that the Holy Spirit is prompting you, do not be afraid to respond to what God is doing in your life. Would you respond to him this morning? Don't sit back and, 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 and be casual about it. Instead, let the Lord work in your life. Respond as he's directing you today. Lord, we wait for you this morning, and we thank you for the redemption that comes through Jesus. We thank you for salvation that is in you. Lord, we thank you that though we were once objects of your wrath, we have now become objects of your mercy, where once your, your anger was directed at us because we are sinners. Lord, we are now saints, saved by Christ, redeemed by your mercy. Today, Lord, we receive that as a gift. We receive it as a gift of your love, as the ministry of your grace in our lives. Lord, we bless your name. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you've redeemed us and you've loved us at the cost of your son. What a price it was that you paid. Lord, we cannot fathom the depth of your mercy and the goodness of your grace. We can't measure it. Our minds can't comprehend it. How is it, Lord, that you would give your son Jesus for us? How is it that you would offer him as a sacrifice for our redemption? How is it that he would bear the punishment of my sin, the weight of what I have done? How is it that, that he would bear the wrath of God against my sin? And yet, Lord, we thank you that though we cannot fully comprehend it, that you have done it in Jesus. We thank you that he has set us free. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Let that mercy be received today. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we find it difficult to receive your mercy. We want to make our own way. We want to be our own man, our own woman. We don't want to be in anyone's debt, including yours. But Lord, today we surrender to you. We know that we are in your debt, and yet you have set us free, and you have not held us in bondage, and the guilty verdict has been undone. We bless your name, Lord. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, as we have heard your word today, we ask that as we go, we would not get up the same people that we were. We pray that our understanding of your salvation would be increased and that the increase in us would look like freedom from day to day, lives of real righteousness and holiness as we follow you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to walk in your presence, to walk in the liberty of the sons and daughters of God. May your righteousness and your freedom be evident in us to all that we come into contact with. And may your name be glorified through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we believe for these things. Amen. And thank you for being with us this morning. If you'd like to stay and pray, you, of course, can do that. Otherwise, we will see you again soon on Wednesday night for our uh, midweek prayer service. We pray God's blessing on you and may you go in his grace and in his peace.